Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by Typeform. We'll talk a little bit more about them later on. I'm Ben Alexander, and my co-host is John Chigi. How you doing, John? Doing very good. How you doing, Ben? Not bad. Awesome. Well, I just wanted to uh, start the show out, as I usually do. I've had some more reviews on iTunes. Uh, a few other people have recommended the podcast. We also got a mention on uh, another podcast, which is uh, very nice. Uh, it was um, from uh, CPG Gray on uh yeah, which was very, very nice. I appreciate that. And uh, as always, I'm also getting um, uh, thanks and comments back and feedback from the show about the show on uh, Twitter, app.net, and and so on. So uh, just, again, to reiterate, we do read them all, the ones we can find, and thank you so much for that. But after a two-hour episode last week, I wanted to be a little bit more brief this time. However, the interesting thing is that this is also a uh, listener request, just like last episode, uh, which was about P-Cell. This one is going to be about a virus. Ooh. And uh, not, no, yeah, no, not the common cold, though. Uh, and uh, something that is, uh, that I've had either regrettably or not uh, lots of experience with, which is SCADA. So today we're going to talk about Stuxnet. And this hasn't really been, I suppose, a hot topic for a while, but uh, it came back through the feedback form in the survey. A few people had asked uh, me to talk about it. So, you know what? Let's do it. So I'm going to start talking about about SCADA. And and SCADA, first of all, stands for Supervisory Control and Data Acquisition. And essentially, it is software that runs on a PC, typically, although you can get Mac and Linux versions of SCADA. They're less common, but they do exist. It uh, it started out with control systems, and uh, I suppose I would refer people, listeners, to Episode 3, Turn the Damn Light Off, uh, for more information about the PLC components of this, the controller component and so on. But there was a point where everything was integrated, where SCADA was what was referred to as the entire control system. And uh, that sort of splintered off in the uh, 60s as um, computers and there was uh, mini computers and and so on. And eventually when we got to personal computers, everything became separated so that the SCADA became the human machine interface, HMI, and the PLCs, RTUs and so on were their own independent devices that didn't require a SCADA front end to, to function. And SCADA was simply considered to be a window into the brain of the PLC and the RTU. So it was essentially a graphical representation of the data. So there is a good history of, uh, there's a link in the show notes, um, history of SCADA in from a, uh, a gentleman from the electricity industry in the US. And uh, I found that to be quite fascinating. It was in many respects similar to my experiences, although mine didn't go back quite that far. And uh, it's worth a read if you're interested in some of that history. I didn't want to do a history lesson on SCADA really for this episode. I wanted to focus more on Stuxnet specifically. In in any case, the point is these days, SCADA is, is the HMI software that lives on the, the PC generally. 
And what it's used for is data acquisition, oddly, as the name suggests, uh, trending and alarming. But it doesn't actually do direct control. Technically, it doesn't control. It requires an operator. It, it's the interface for the operator. So traditionally, where you would have a push button on a panel and you would, uh, or you would turn a handle and open and close a valve, that's all be made uh, to be motorized and you could push a button on a panel or you bring that back into the SCADA such that you click on a button and it becomes uh, valve open, valve close. Or if it's a position control valve, valve go to 26%. So you would type in 26%, hit enter in the SCADA system in the right spot and it would move that valve. The control system, the PLC or RTU, would then move that valve into the required position. It would also provide things like logging. So, you know, you click on a button, it says, oh, okay, operator, blah, 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 or whatever their name is. When you type in a number, whatever it is, it will you could log what the previous value was, what the new value is, the time, the date, and the person that logged it. And, of course, if you've got multiple SCADA systems around the place, they're all the same, but uh, you, know, you might have one SCADA computer close to one end of the factory, one at the other end. You could also log the location uh, that it was changed. So all of that stuff, you know, all that good operator interface stuff, that's... Uh, that's stored in SCADA. The other things, like I mentioned, trending, so trending values. So, for example, let's say you've got a process value like flow, flow of whatever, or temperature, whatever, or pH, or you know, think think of a, a process value that you might be monitoring. The PLC will read that data in and tell you, oh, okay, it's 17.6 degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius or whatever, uh, or the flow rate is 120 liters per second or you know feet per minute or whatever the heck it is. The point is that, that value would come into the SCADA. The SCADA would take a sample and then you could say, "Take, I want 10 samples uh, every minute or I want one sample every second and I want to keep a history for up to five years. So it would then store all this information and you could recall that by clicking on the actual number in the SCADA. It would bring up a nice pretty trend that would show you a nice little graph of, uh, of what that value was. Uh, based on all the samples that the SCADA system has accumulated. Uh, it also provides an interface for alarms. So, you know, something goes wrong, or, you know, you've got a production line and, you know, someone hits an emergency stop. Well, it would indicate in the SCADA and there'd probably be lights flashing and buzzers going off and hopefully no one's injured. But the point is that that would be indicated in the SCADA and logged as an alarm. So at this time and at this date, this emergency stop button was pushed and yeah, it'll show the status of the system. So you'll get an alarm from that and it'll show the system status. So broadly speaking, the purpose of SCADA, the way I'd like to think of it is it is a window into the mind of the PLC and the RTUs. And okay, they don't actually have minds, you know what I mean? It's, it's a little controller with a bunch of memory bits in it. So it, it presents the information for the user. Now, SCADA software... Uh, has been produced from a multitude of different vendors. And some of the most popular SCADA systems in the world you may have heard of, some you may have never heard of. And in fact, there's probably plenty of people listening to this that have never heard of SCADA or don't know what SCADA is. So maybe now some of these names will not make sense. But some of the most popular uh, SCADA packages in the world, uh, one from Rockwell Automation is called RSView. Uh, another one is uh, from Siemens is called WinCC. Uh there was uh, one from Schneider called uh, Vigio, uh, one from a company that I've done a lot of work with in the past that was acquired by Schneider, uh, and their software, SCADA software, is called Cytect, which I have mentioned previously on the show. So I spent a lot of hours in Cytect. And uh, there's another one called Wonderware, uh, iFix, the Simplicity, uh, Experian. These are all different names for SCADA software. 
and of course the software is not compatible you just you you design something in SciTech. there's no export to wincc form button or vice versa it's all proprietary and different and and so on so scala software is really built in two components or layers i guess you've got the graphical layer that you you actually function in and then there's the driver layer so the driver layer of the software has the drivers that actually communicate with with the PLCs, and those drivers will be specific for certain PLCs. So if you have a Siemens PLC and it's an S7200 or an S7300 series, or if you have a uh, Modicon, a Schneider Modicon uh, Premium uh, PLC or a Quantum PLC, each of those may have a common driver for the brand or they may have individual drivers depending upon the series of PLC. So you might have a different driver for a uh, Quantum versus the driver you would need for a premium PLC from Schneider. Or again, you know, RS Logix 500 to a Control Logix 5000 series. No matter how you slice it, the drivers themselves are the link between the SCADA and the PLCs. And without drivers that work, the SCADA is essentially useless. One of the things that they decided in industry years ago was to come up with an open uh, process connection standard. And uh, they called it OPC, uh, which actually stands for OLE for process control. And OLE is object uh, link embedding, I think, from memory. And anyway, the point of OPC is that if I made a PLC or an RTU, I could release with it software that would be an OPC driver. And that would then mean that it would be possible for any application that spoke, uh, that, that supported OPC to talk to my PLC without any further drivers. And that sort of worked okay, but there were other issues with OPC. Generally speaking, you want to match up the SCADA system with the kind of PLC underneath it. So in other words, if I buy a Siemens PLC, I'm probably going to have WinCC as the front end SCADA. And all of this is, of course, I'm not even talking about DCSs here. DCSs are another beast altogether where they, the hardware is more like it was back in the 60s prior to the PC sort of taking off and, sorry, um, individual computers taking off and so on. So just forgetting DCSs for the moment because with regards to Stuxnet, um, it was specifically targeting SCADA and PLCs. That is my crash course on what SCADA is. And the pieces that go to making it uh, go, pieces for making it go together. Maybe someday I'll go into that in a bit more depth, but for today, that's all I really want to talk about. So now, in order to understand a bit more about Stuxnet and what it did and why it did what it did, we need to talk a little bit about uranium. Now, we did actually cover a little bit of this about thorium when we're talking about thorium uh, back in um, one of the follow-up episodes for the battery problem. So. Crash course in uh, some nuclear physics real quickly. And the reason I've got to cover this is, well, basically because Stuxnet was all about sabotaging a nuclear facility or a nuclear enrichment facility. Hence why I need to talk about this. Okay, so back to high school physics. All atoms consist of protons and neutrons. The atomic number is the proton count. And for uranium, that's 92. The neutrons keep the protons from flying apart and they'll form semi-stable or hopefully more stable structures in the nucleus. And the numbers go up uh, at a non-linear rate the more protons you add. So the more protons you add, you have to add proportionally more neutrons in order for it to become stable. So all elements have got multiple, you know, more or less stable configurations of protons and neutrons. 
And each configuration they call an isotope. And that can that isotope will have a total count of neutrons and protons. So whenever you see an element, you'll see uh, yeah, uranium-92-238, for example. And what that means is that that's isotope 238. So there's 238 protons plus neutrons, but there's only 92 protons. Hence, you know it's, it's uranium and you know how many neutrons it's got in that configuration for that isotope. The thing is, not all isotopes are created equal. So you'll have isotopes that are, in fact, unstable or will... will essentially will, will decay, will go through radioactive decay through emitting a whole bunch of different particles, alpha, beta, blah, 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 gamma. But the point is that when you find these elements out in the real world, they will have a certain blend to them. So you'll have, let's say you've got six isotopes for whatever you know element that we're talking about. And because of the decay rates of the different isotopes, you will tend to find on average that there will be a certain proportion of the different isotopes included in your sample. So this leads to the idea of an atomic mass or an atomic mass unit, or they call it AMU, obviously, for short. And the atomic mass unit takes those proportions into account. So if you look at a periodic table, you'll see uranium and it'll say uranium 92 and then it'll say 238.02891. And that's the AMU, that's the atomic mass unit. And what that does, that factors in all the different isotopes that you'll find naturally occurring uranium has. And it should be a pretty damn good indicator, 238.02891. The 02, that's the giveaway that almost all uranium's most stable isotope is uranium-238. With me so far, I'm hoping. Yeah, it's coming back to me. Coming back, all right, all right. So to make fissible nuclear material, we need uranium-235. I mean, there are other fissible forms, but it is the most fissible. And its percentage is 0.72%. So if you take any sample of uranium, you're only going to naturally occurring, you'll only find 0.72% of it is uranium-235. So we've got to separate that out from uranium-238. We have to get to a concentration of somewhere between 3 to 5% of uranium-235 in our sample in order to be used for a nuclear reactor fuel rod. Interestingly, if you want um, if you want more kick, you need to get between 80 and 95% to reach what they uh, so-called weapons-grade material. I actually do remember this stuff now. I read a gigantic book about the Manhattan Project and the incredible amount of work they had to do to do what you're talking about. Oh, yeah. That was the hard part. That was the hard part. The science was all there. It was actually producing it that was insane yeah absolutely it was and what we're going to talk about with regards to stuxnet has everything to do with that so this uh the way that they came up a way of doing it and the predominant way of doing it is to take the uranium that you've got and convert it into a gas and the specific gas that they converted into is uranium hexafluoride which is uf6 in its gaseous state it's easy to separate because as a metal, it's very, very hard to separate it as a metal, as a solid, as a liquid. Once you get to a gas, though, that's not so much of a problem. So what they do is they use a centrifuge. So uh, you basically put something in a centrifuge and it spins around in a circle real fast. And the idea is that just like gravity uh, will eventually, if you've got particles in solution, 
and you leave them on the table, eventually, if there's some of them are going to precipitate out, they will eventually precipitate to the bottom, well, based on the density, because gravity will tend to pull them towards the bottom. Whereas if you were to put such a mixture in a centrifuge, it will, you know, it'll, through centrifugal force, will provide multiple times the force of gravity. And uh, it's also the way they, um, they do training for aircraft, uh, sorry, astronauts, so that they can experience the uh, extra Gs in ta- of takeoff. So anyway, the idea of using a centrifuge to s- essentially spin the heavier elements, the heavier gases to the outside of, of these things, and the slightly lighter, ever so slightly lighter, uranium-235 stays somewhere in the centre of, of the centrifuge. So using this sort of an idea, the rotation, these are like tall cylinders, right? And there's, links in, there's a good link in the show notes about this as well. The idea is that the inside of the cylinder is a very high-speed rotor. So the rotor will spin around and spin the gas up to an incredibly high speed. And when that happens, uh, the lighter gases will essentially come towards the center. And then by using heating and cooling, uh, by specifically heating the center of it, then the lighter gases will race to the top where they are siphoned up and they go into the next stage. So that, whereas the, um, the slightly depleted stream sort of like goes back down to a lower stage if that makes any sense. It's hard for me to describe it with words, but that's that's the gist of how it works. But in order for the centrifuges to actually function efficiently, they need to spin at incredibly high speeds, up to 60,000 RPM. So these things are very precisely machined. And that because uranium hexafluoride is quite corrosive, they need to be made out of corrosive, corrosion-resistant materials. So these things are expensive and they spin at very high rates. Now, uh, if you want to just have a have a think about one of the other things we've covered previously, we talked about flywheels on the follow-up episode to the battery problem, uh, episode 2D, follow-up episode 2D. So if you want to have a look, uh, want to refer back to that, if you haven't listened to that, then I encourage you to listen to that. that talk, we talk there about some of the challenges of spinning flywheels at high speeds. So similar similar issues here. So the what you end up with is you've got high-speed, low-friction bearings, and the... The other problem that you've got is that any one individual centrifuge really will not enrich a large proportion of the uranium. So what you've got to do is you've got to have dozens or even hundreds of these things cascaded together in order to achieve the required amount of enrichment. So this is a very expensive uh, process. It's time-consuming, and you know, these things are not cheap. So... Uh, in order to make sure that the rotors and the bearings are not damaged because they are expensive, you want to make sure you accelerate them like in a controlled fashion. That you don't just like flick a switch and go from standstill up to sixty thousand RPM in the space of half a second. That kind of crazy stuff that would be bad because that will end up damaging the rotor and and or its bearings or possibly even the housing. Because all of that torsional force, of that acceleration is is a problem. So what you want to do is you want to ramp that up and you want to maintain that speed pretty constantly and, and pretty accurately. And uh, there are ways to do that. So before we dive into exactly what Stuxnet did, because we're now at the point where we can start talking about it, maybe you could tell us a little bit about Typeform. Forms are a key component of asking questions online. 
but up until now, they've meant a lot of work to design, configure, and administer. And after all that, the results have usually been unflattering. There are form builders out there that take care of some of the problems. They make it easier to get something basic up, but creating something great with them is still hard. We need a tool that's easy to use, feature-rich, and something that looks and works great on any device. This is where Typeform comes in. Typeforms are beautifully designed and have cross-platform compatibility baked in. They're tailored to look and work differently on desktops, on smartphones, and on tablets. Design is about how it works, and Typeforms are built to really work, regardless of the device. The platform itself is a joy to use, both as a customer creating a Typeform and a user interacting with one. The UI is sexy, clean, and fast, and designing even complex series of questions is made simple through their dashboard. The experience is focused on asking and answering one question at a time, so it doesn't feel overwhelming and nobody gets lost. It's like a real conversation. Typeform champions good user experience and design. This helps you create a space in which users will be more willing to answer and more likely to give honest answers. From customer feedback and surveys, contests and landing pages, event organization, in the classroom, Typeform lets your imagination fly. People are using Typeforms in a variety of ways to make interactive stories, holiday cards, team presentations, avatar creation, the list goes on and on. Typeform is the only online form builder that lets you get unlimited responses for free. As many questions as you want, as many answers as you get, Typeform doesn't limit your interaction. It just lets you ask awesomely. For a limited time, Typeform is offering a three-month free trial of their new Typeform Pro service. Check out what you can build by visiting www.typeform.com slash fiatlux. If you like what you see and sign up, be sure to use the coupon code FIATLUX to get your free three months. Thank you to Typeform for sponsoring the show and for making it easier for people to get to know each other better. It's awesome. Thanks for that, Ben. Okay, so now we'll get into what Stuxnet actually did. So first of all, Stuxnet's original target was believed to be the Natanz, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, plant, and that's in Iran. Again, there's a link in the show notes. And that was a nuclear enrichment facility. Stuxnet technically is a worm, first identified by a security company called Virus Block Ada. And that was in mid-June of 2010. And there's a journalist by the name of Brian Krebs on the 15th of July 2010. So that's about you know a month later. Uh, that that blog post was uh, the first widely read report on this particular virus. The original name that was given to it by Virus Blockader was the Rootkit.tempHider. Then Symantec called it Win well W32, you know, short for Win32. Dot tempHide, and then later they gave it its synonymous name uh, Win32. Dot Stuxnet. Now Stuxnet. As viruses go, there are, you know, there are cases where viruses will go out of their way to steal uh, any old key strokes they can find and report them all back in the hope that sometimes maybe they'll get some, they'll strike it lucky, right? You know, there are other ones that intentionally wait and then wipe your hard drive and start over. There's other ones more recently that ransom you to get access to your damn computer. They say, oh, wow, I've locked your computer with an encryption key. You pay me money and I'll unlock it for you. That kind of BS. Anyway, the point is that they are, in essence, using exploits, uh, re- computer exploits, but what they're doing is it's a sledgehammer approach. So by the end of September 2010, there are over 100,000 known infected hosts. 
that doesn't mean, of course, that there are 100,000 SCADA systems driving, um, you know, nuclear enrichment facilities. It just means that, you know, they were infected, but they could have been dormant. It was first seen in July of 2009. So just that's just to give you a little bit of an, a timeline, and that'll become relevant later. So essentially, the virus had three components, an injection and replication method at the Windows operating system level. Then the second level was a modification to the WinCC Step 7 DLLs, and that opened the gateway to the PLCs. And then finally, the third final layer was a modification to the Profibus communications function layer in the PLC itself. So on the Windows level, the first thing it did was it checked to see what the operating system was. Now, the operating systems that it actually worked for, we had Windows 2000, Windows XP, Windows 2003, <sighs> Vista, Windows Server 2008, Windows 7, Windows Server 2008 R2. All right, so the bottom line with all the OSs, that's quite, an, quite a long list. So the, the next thing it do, does is once it figures out it's actually on an operating system that it'll, the hack will work on, it checks to see if the currently logged in user has admin rights. And if it doesn't, it runs one or another zero-day escalation of privilege exploits. And, that, and which one it runs, it runs based on uh, the operating system that, that it's installed on. So there's two different uh, escalation exploits, privilege escalation exploits, depending upon what it's on. So uh, the most common one, Windows XP, Windows 2000, that particular one was uh, MS10-073. Now, that particular vulnerability was not patched until the 12th of October 2010. So I refer you back to it was first noticed as in in the wild in July of 2009. It was reported on in about July of the in 2010, the following year, and it was not patched until October of that year. Uh, so once it's got elevated privileges, it then injects itself into WinCC and Step 7 DLLs. So it's more or less at this point we're going to talk about WinCC and Step 7. And I realize I haven't really gone into that yet. But bottom line, WinCC is Siemens SCADA system. And I think it stands for Windows uh, Control Center. Uh, Windows, yeah, Windows Control Center, I think, from memory. Now, WinCC is a SCADA system just like any other. And it has graphical front end. It's got drivers. It's designed to work with the Siemens PLCs or any it's OPC compliant. So if you have an OPC driver, you can use Bob's PLC from around the corner. But uh, irrespective of that, it does not program the PLCs. It's not capable of programming the PLCs. If it's installed on its own, it can extract data and write data to and from the PLCs, but it cannot modify the PLC code itself. It can only modify memory addresses. Now, that's, a, that's actually very important because the second piece of software I mentioned is something called Step 7. Now, for whatever reason, Siemens call their... Uh, software for modifying their PLCs, they call it STEP. Back when I started out, I started out on uh, STEP 5, and STEP 5 was purely DOS-based, and STEP 5 was for, well, they called them the S5 PLCs, hence the name STEP 5. So S5 PLCs were, you know, big old sort of uh, light, light beige-coloured, big, blunt, like, chunky things. And when they released uh, the S7 PLCs, that was in the mid early to mid-90s, they gradually started to, tow, um, to to wind back 
their uh, their efforts on the S5, and Step 5 faded into the background. And that's when they introduced Step 7. So Step 7 was purely Windows-based, and it's sometimes referred to as Somatic Manager. And it allows you to do a lot of things. You can Through Step 7, you can program... There's a bunch of add-ons that actually allows you to extend this, but basically you can program all of their PLCs. Technically, you need MicroWin to program a S7200, but suffice it to say, you must install Step 7 in order to modify the code on the PLC. So let's say you want to edit a block because it's not performing correctly. Well, that's what you need. It is your development environment for the want of a better description. So it is the equivalent of Xcode uh, for Siemens PLCs. It is not SCADA. It can display data in tabular format and it can show you live data showing what the logic is doing up to a point. It has other limitations, but never mind that. And... It can give you that, but it will not give you a beautiful, pretty front end like a SCADA will. It will not trend data for you like SCADA will. It will not provide alarming like SCADA will. So it is not SCADA. It is purely a development environment for programming the PLCs. So what does Stuxnet do? Well, the funny thing is that it actually seeks out, once it's gotten to this point, it's in. it scans the computer and says, do you have WinCC installed? Tick Yes, great. Do you have Step 7 installed as well? And if you do, tick, you're on. It goes to the next stage. If you don't, it gives up right there. So what it's trying to do straight away is it's not trying to just infect any old damn computer. It finds itself, it gives, oh, oh, elevated privileges, zero-day zero day exploit, no problem. At that point, it does nothing. If you don't have WinCC and Step 7 installed, it just gives up. It's got nothing else to sell you. End of story. It'll it'll try and infect other computers, but that's it. What it then does, if you have that installed, is it will specifically, it will replace s7otbxdx.dll, which essentially is the intermediary communicating between the PLC and step seven. So it does a lot of the data conversion so that um, the data is written down to the PLC and read back from it, and it, it, it essentially does the conversion and a bunch of other bits and bobs. So by replacing that, it it injects a middleman. The modified DLL allows the injection of malicious code, but just as importantly as that, it masks the return path. So if you look into the PLC from that compromised version of Step 7, you will not see that injected malicious code. It'll show up as though it's not there. So not only does it allow the Stuxnet to inject code, it also masks its presence so that if you open up Step 7, it all looks hunky-dory. It looks fine. You won't even know it's there. So the only way to know if your PLC was infected at that, in, you know, at that point before there was a cleaning tool that was released, the only way you could do that was to have an uninfected Step 7, most likely on a standalone laptop, plug directly on Profibus into the PLC's memory and then do a code dump from the PLC and have a look for anything malicious. In other words, not straightforward. Could be done, but, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about the wisdom of putting Step 7 on a SCADA computer at the end. So that's where Stuxnet is up to at the moment. So now we've hacked our a path into the PLC now, so we can now inject malicious code into the PLC. So what... Did it put in the PLC? I hear you all ask. Well, 
Specifically, it modified the running set points of speeds of variable speed drives in specific PLCs only. So real quick, variable speed drives, if you don't know what a VSD is, uh, variable speed drive uses uh, matrix of IGBTs, insulator gate bipolar um, FETs, the turning current on and off, pulse width modulation to give you whatever frequency you want. You filter the output, you get a nice, well, I'd say a nice pretty clean sine wave, but it's not really that clean, it's cleanish. And the idea is that you can change the frequency from zero up to, you know, however many hundred or thousand hertz, uh, because the variable speed drive will will then of course go let's say it's going to an induction motor and then that particular motor will will then will then spin at whatever speed uh, is set by the frequency of the power of that waveform. So variable speed drives are very very handy, very cool, and variable speed drives have been around now for getting close to 40 years, although they were dear as poison back in the early days. These days they've become cheap as chips to the point at which VSDs are essentially what makes um, the Prius run, what makes uh, the uh, all of Tesla's cars, the Roadster, the Model S, and eventually hopefully the Model X someday if it ever gets made. All of those have variable speed drives driving their motors. Uh, if you're on an electric train, they all have variable speed drives. So VSDs are an integral part of turning electrical voltage slash current into mechanical motion these days. So that's what a variable speed drives are. And in this particular case, the variable speed drives were connected to the rotors on the centrifuges. So the variable speed drives did the acceleration control and the speed control of the actual rotors as they were spinning. Okay, so how on earth did it know? Like, to specifically modify set points and, and so on. And I guess we've got to learn a little bit more before it makes any sense. So Stuxnet specifically only attacked PLC systems with VSDs from two vendors, a company called Vacon, based in Finland. I think it's pronounced Vacon. Maybe it's Vacon, not sure. The other one, Ferraro Paya which is based in Iran itself. Now, that straight out of the blocks is just plain weird because if you are writing something that was you know, meant to disturb systems generically, like you are trying to stop something generically in multiple plants of different kinds around the world, why would you restrict yourself to two VSDs? Wouldn't be that hard to extend it to more than just two little bit of research, a couple of extra subroutines, no problem. Could have done it. Because every variable speed drive stores the set points in different locations. So they have two routines in Stuxnet that actually target each of those different VSDs, but only those two. So that leads to the, it's very specific. And why it's specific, we'll get to the conspiracy theories in a minute. So each of the drives, as I said, has subtly different um, addressing and the attack timing sequences are also subtly different. There's probably a good reason for why the timing sequences were different. I, I just I don't have the complete control system design, so I can't answer exactly why they were different, but it might be something to do with uh, the uh, the Vaco, um, Vacon, sorry, the Vacon drives. Maybe they were connected up through a, a different kind of gearbox or maybe they were different, had a different number of poles on them. I don't know. All I know is that there were differences. And I'm going to assume that there are logical differences because the rest of the detail would suggest 
that whoever was writing Stuxnet had a complete set of blueprints for the control system because it's just way, way too specific. Variable speed drives get a speed set point. They tell you know you tell this thing how what speed you want to run it. I want to run at 50 hertz, 100 hertz, 200 hertz, 2000 hertz, whatever the hell the number is, doesn't matter. You tell these drives traditionally using an analog signal, which is four to twenty milliamps, which is you know what sometimes referred to as a current loop. Now current loops have problems because you know they are, they can be affected by noise. Although admittedly that hasn't been a problem so much since they went to current loops. Previously, they were voltage loops, and voltage loops were highly susceptible to noise problems. So since they went away from 0 to 10 and 0 to 5 volts, they went to 4 to 20 milliamps, then you know things got better. But it's better still if you can do it digitally, and hence that's why a lot of them are going to control via Profibus. Of course, I say Profibus, um, which is short for Process Field Bus. That's the Siemens standard, and it's been around for a long time. The oldest one is Modbus, and we actually did talk about this as well on uh, the communications uh, with uh, Turn the Damn Light Off, uh, Episode 3. So refer to that if you want to know more about it. But in any case, Profibus is fully digital, which means if I send 50 hertz, it, the drive will get 50 hertz. There'll be no plus or minus 5%, 2%, 1% based on the inaccuracies in a current loop. So that precision makes it attractive. It's not just that. One wire can carry hundreds and hundreds of parameters. So I could dynamically change the acceleration, the ramp rate, for ramping up, ramping down, the braking coefficient, the, all sorts of details I could modify of a Profibus if I really wanted to. The mapping of the data on the Profibus um, is going to be different for each drive, and obviously they tailored it for two separate drives. But in any case, um, yeah, that's what they did specifically because it was clearly for a specific target. Now, the only variants of PLC that were implemented were the S7 315-2. Now, at the time that they wrote Stuxnet, there were two models available of the 315-2. There was the 315-2DP, which is two distributed periphery, or aka Profibus, and the other one was a 315-2 PNDP. And PN stands for uh, Profinet. In other words, industrial Ethernet, or at least the Siemens version of industrial Ethernet. They call Profinet. So the idea is a PNDP CPU will have one Profinet and one Profibus interface. Now, it doesn't really matter which of those two models it is, uh, and I've programmed plenty of those that exact model of PLC. Uh, the other variant that they programmed it for, but it was an incomplete implementation, was for an S7, uh, it was a 417, I believe, 417-3 maybe. I, I didn't actually uh, bother writing that one down because it was incomplete. So, you know, the one that they completed in depth was the S7315-2. That was one the exploit ran on, specifically and only. So, in other words, if Stuxnet found that you had a, a, a computer with an operating system that it could compromise, it would elevate its privileges, and then it would say, do you have WinCC in step seven? Yes, you do. Great. Next step. If at that point it then read the system data block and said, oh, you're not an S7315-2 PDP or two uh, PNDP, it would say, oh, no, no. Not interested, and it would stop right there. Again, very specific. So, and, and there's no reason that I can think of why. I mean, because functionally speaking, a 315-2 PNDP is very little different from a 317 or a 3182 or 3 PNDP because those models have simply got more memory and more ports. You know, they can handle more I/O. They're, they're essentially the same bloody PLC. Again, very specific. 
And one more thing that's even that's specific is they were going to use they were using Stuxnet was using specifically the communications blocks for the CP342-5 module. That stands for communication processor. I know, sorry, I know a lot of this off by heart because I've been dealing with it for so damn long. But the point is, a CP342-5 is an independent communication processor that you can add on to your PLC to give you an additional Profibus port. So let's say you use up all the data or all of the devices on the one that's built into the CPU. Well, you add another CP card and you get a whole new card. You can you can have a whole new Profibus network. So why on earth, if you've got because, I mean, I can count the number of times I use the 342-5 on one hand, you know, because honestly, between, you know, you've got two DP ports on a 2DP, hence the number 2DP, uh, or the 2PNDP, you've got one Profibus and one Profinet. Usually, on most systems, that's plenty. You only need to add another Profibus uh, module if you've got a lots and lots of devices hanging off of it and you overload one, or you don't want to overload one, you want to spread the load. So again, that's kind of very specific. But when you think about it, if you remember how I said with the uh, centrifuges that you needed dozens, if not hundreds of these things? Well, think about how you would design that. So the limit on a Profibus network is 32 devices per segment. And if everything was on a variable speed drive, and that's actually generally VSDs will have a reasonable amount of data going back and forth with the large number of centrifuges that you've got, it would make sense. If I was designing it, that's what I would do is I would split them up. I'd say, okay, well, you 30, you're on this card. I'll add another card. You can do the next 30 and this card and do the next 30 because it wouldn't be very computationally expensive. It would simply be, I've got a lot of devices I need to address. So how exactly does it do its magic? if you can call it magic, how it hacks the PLC is really not that difficult. When you're using a CP card, then the native send-receive functionality that's built into Somatic Manager is not available on, on, on certain levels of Profibus data transactions, and I don't want to get into the details, but essentially you will tend to use DP receive and DP send. Okay, little real quick lesson on Siemens PLCs. Siemens PLCs have... Essentially, four kinds of blocks. You have organization blocks, OBs, and the organization blocks, their job is to execute repeated code, uh, for the want of a better way of describing it. Uh, FCs for functions, and uh, functions are essentially you put a bunch of inputs into the function, it spits a bunch of outputs out of the function. You don't have to have inputs and outputs. You can simply call it, and it'll execute a series of, of instructions, and then it'll it'll jump out, and that that's it. You know, like a subroutine. It's not really that different at all to any old function that you would write in uh, in C or Objective C. Function blocks, however, are subtly different from functions because they can have an attached data block, which is the fourth kind. A data block is really just a table of data. You're reserving space in the memory and saying, I want this, 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 this. This is an integer. This is a Boolean. This is a double word, whatever, whatever. And you give it a symbol and a name and you hit save. There you go. Now I've got a data block. Yay. Function blocks can, are directly associated with that. A data block is directly associated with a function block. So you can't create a function block without a matching data block. But what it means is that you can actually call a function block and have dozens of different data blocks that drive the functionality. And that is one of the methods by which in a Siemens PLC, you will have 
uh, one function block that controls a valve, and yet you have 100 different valves, and they're all defined by their own individual data block. This is valve one, this is valve two, this is valve three, and so on. You're, hence, giving them a personality. You can have standalone data blocks as well. But anyway, those are the basic types of blocks. So it injects itself into OB1 and OB35. OB1, every time I say that, I just, OB1 Kenobi. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, it's called OB1. Anyhow, OB1 is referred to in Siemens parlance as the cyclic task. So in other words, it kicks itself off at the end of itself, if that makes sense. You start the block when you, when you hit run on the PLC, it will start executing at that point. It'll run through the instructions in OB1. When it hits out the end, it'll circle back to the beginning and start again. So it is the cyclic ongoing process. Cyclic task. OB35 is a time-triggered task of higher priority than OB1. And there's a whole bunch of them. On the S7, uh, on the 305-2, you only get OB35. But if you go to the more expensive PLCs, you'll get more OBs. You go to the S7 400s, you'll get OB35, 36, 37, 38, 39. So you can actually have multiples. And that's important when they do integration to the DCS that they have, which is PCS7. Again, sidetracked, long story. Point is, you can set that to trigger after, I don't know, one second, 10 seconds, you know, 500 milliseconds. So whatever OB1 is doing, whatever code it's executing, as soon as you hit that one second, let's say it's set to a second, OB35 will say, whoop, nah, you shut up, I'm going to do my thing. Then it executes the code in OB35, dumps out the end of it, and then waits for it goes to sleep until the next minute comes around. And then OB1 carries on what it's doing. So the whole point is that you've got your main cyclic task and you've got a periodic executable task. It injects code into there that calls its special functions. So the next thing that it does is it moves the DP receive and, uh, function from wherever it is in the code to function F FC1869. Now, I don't know why 1869, but I, I guess they figured it's a long way from all the function blocks. If you start numbering your functions from one, like you normally do, it's pretty unlikely you're going to have a, a PLC that's got 1,869 functions in it. I mean, I certainly haven't written a PLC code on an S7 300 that had that many in it. 400s? Yes, no, but not, not, not a 300. Oh, no, no. So I think they just shoved it out there because it was in the far right, and they figured, no, it's not likely to be anything there. Technically, if there was something there, it would probably overwrite it, and you may have a dysfunctional PLC on your hands. But I think that's just an even bet. You know, Am I going to have something there? Probably not. Anyway... When you install the DP receive function, send receive functions, they normally go into FC1 and FC2. You drag them in from the library, they automatically go to FC1, FC2. Of course, you can rename them to whatever number you'd like, uh, but irrespective of what number it is, it shifts that copy out to FC1869 and it inserts its own copy. And of course, its own copy is extra special. What it does then is those function blocks control the Profibus messaging to anything on the Profibus. So whenever it's called, on a CP342-5 card, which is in this case, we, we believe, talking to a variable speed drive, it can now intercept. So once it can do that, it now owns every link in the chain. So now it can take over from the WinCC, from the SCADA level, all the way down through the Step 7 level, through the driver, down to the PLC, and then directly onto the Profibus. At that point, Stuxnet's installation is essentially complete, and it now has control. So the next thing that it does, which is, again, super specific, is it monitors the frequency of any of the attached variable speed drives in the system, but
but it only adjusts those that are spinning at a rate between 807 hertz and 1,210 hertz. Now, I've been doing this sort of thing for a while, and admittedly, I have not actually had anything to do with uh, nuclear plants and nuclear fuel enrichment plants, but those numbers sound so terribly specific to me. So there's a reason that they are so damn specific. I've run percentages on them. I've tried to figure out based on you know the number of poles you would expect on the motors, what you would expect their spin, the, the rotational rates to be. Truth is, I couldn't find a pattern. If anyone knows what the pattern is, please share. But I, I, I don't know. There's probably some specific reason that I just don't have the design details. I could answer it. Anyway. Once it's done that, and once it figures out, oh, look, I have some motors in the system. Yes, they're on this card. Yes, I'm intersecting their profit bus. And now they're they're spinning between 807 hertz and 1210 hertz. At that point in time, all the criteria are met. And then it will periodically modify the frequency up to 1410 hertz, in other words, going over speed, right down to 2 hertz, which is practically stopped and then a point roughly in the middle somewhere at 1,064 hertz. So in other words, it messes with the frequency of the, the motor is spinning, the rotors, and it does so in a, uh, a more direct fashion. It also installs a bunch of data blocks that the WinCC, the PC part of the virus looks at, and that's data block 890, and that's monitored from the SCADA side and if you have multiple PLCs, it'll scan the bus and it'll say, okay, all you PLCs, I've got a flag set in DB890. I want you to all go off at the same time. So what it does is it actually synchronizes all the PLCs that are connected to do the same thing to all the motors at exactly the same time on the on the control system that, that's connected to that, to that SCADA system. So if you had you know, like one SCADA system controlling five PLCs, all five PLCs and all of their motors would do exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. So it's synchronized. The timing, though, is is actually quite elaborate because there's a pseudo-random time interval. And you look at the way it does it, it counts Profibus frames, and it's just really bizarre. But what it adds up to is between 13 days and three months apart, there will be an attack that runs for between 15 minutes and 50 minutes, so not quite an hour, quarter an hour to just over you know, three quarters of an hour. If I was an engineer running those plants, I would have been ripping my hair out because you'd be sitting there and all would be hunky-dory and suddenly you'd, your drives would be spinning at all sorts of crazy speeds. You'd be like, what the hell is going on? You open up step seven to try and diagnose it and everything looks fine because, of course, it's masking all the hacked code. You can't see it. I'd be beating my head against the desk. And then by the time you've done beating your head against the desk, you'd look up and everything was back to normal again. You'd think, did, did I dream that or did that actually happen? Then you'd look back in your trends and you'd say, no, it did actually happen. Oh, crap. <laughs> That's what Stuxnet does. And if you want to know more detail, there's a lot more detail than that. Symantec have put together an amazing dossier on this that goes through every little intricate detail. There's a lot more to how the virus spreads over the local network and everything and how it how it does some of the other in intricacies within the PLC code if you're into that side of it. or yeah. But I just covered what I consider to be the main points. But truth be told, those are the key points. That's, that's the basic gist of how it works. And I, I call that a basic gist. Okay, well, you know. Okay. So what is the point of all this? The point of all this is you will doing that to the rotors 
will, I, 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 based on my understanding, will cause damage. Their intention was to either hamper the perform, like, like severely impact the performance, or to damage it, damage the rotors such that the centrifuges were uh, damaged in the process and would no longer operate either at maximum efficiency or at all. And by doing the whole pseudo-random attack thing, it allowed it to spread. They weren't in a super hurry if they could have it worst case three months apart. And it was definitely designed to be very stealthy. In the end, all of those requirements, when they did their investigation, came up for that that, uh, enrichment facility in Iran. Of course, it went beyond that. It spread to other places as well. And sometimes when these when these attacks occurred, they were seeded. So people that were involved in those plants, uh, they had for, through espionage, they actually you know hacked in and in, inserted the the code on these people's like flash drives and laptops and in, in in attempts to get it into the building and into the system. And in some cases it happened, in other cases it didn't. And once it was inside the system then it spread through the system. So it was not just, uh, it was a, they had to actually, it wasn't just let's write the code and let it go into the wild. No, they had to actually plant it and get in there. And the reason that they had to do that is because these control systems are typically running on standalone networks. So, and this is the, this is the false, um, this is a false sense of security that I've seen. Now, my own involvement with SCADA systems is that there is a belief, or there has been a belief, perhaps somewhat now since thanks to Stuxnet uh, is less of a uh, belief, but if there certainly was a belief in the, the previous decade or so that because my system is standalone, that I don't have to worry about viruses or malware. And everyone said SCADA is far too specific for anyone to be bothered hacking. I mean, who would hack it, right? It's uh, WinCC may have, 20, 50,000 installs around the world, maybe. That's it, probably. I don't know the numbers, but I'm going to assume it's not huge. How many copies of Microsoft Word are there out there? So if I'm going to spend my time hacking, my and I'm going to get bank account details and so on and so forth, financial gain or just you know pissing people off, I wouldn't target the 50,000 copies. I'd target the million copies. And that was sort of the prevailing thought. But Stuxnet was not interested in that. It wasn't interested in money. It wasn't interested in extortion. It was interested in causing damage. Of course, whether or not it did cause damage or not, I don't know, and maybe I'll never know. But that was clearly the intent, and it was very specific. So they went to whoever built it, and it was suspected that it was the U.S. government plus the Israeli government, although you know that's never been proven exactly. Uh, strong suspicions, but that doesn't mean proof. So we don't know exactly specifically who wrote it. No one stuck their hand up and said, hey, it was me, uh, which happens to some viruses. So what can we conclude from this? Is If standalone didn't save them, the time delay at the operating system level for the patch to come out to patch that zero-day vulnerability to give them elevated privileges, that was terrible. You know, it was known about long before, but it was just never patched. So, you know, honestly, that's another thing that creeps into that mentality. You know, oh, well, we're an isolated network and, you know, because we're isolated, we're not connected to the internet. We don't have to worry about patches and updates and so on and so forth. 
or at least we might do them every six months or every 12 months. Whereas if you're running an IT department, all your computers are connected together and there's a portal to the internet, you are going to be, as an IT guy, you're going to be running those updates as often as you can. Because you're like, I'm exposed. I'm potentially exposed. Someone comes in with a virus, it's going to spread through the whole damn building before I can say, oh my, it's already spread through the building. So, you know, that's that's... That sort of vigilance is prevalent in those systems, whereas I found I've gone to sites where there have been SCADA systems, and okay, fine, not a nuclear power plant. Okay, fine, and not a nuclear enrichment facility. But I've been to plenty of sites of all sorts of different backgrounds, from, from mining to pharmaceutical to, you know, to hospitals, for God's sake, where they haven't updated their virus definitions. That's even if they have a virus scanner or they haven't run a, an update because it's uh, for, 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 for months, if not a year or more. And they don't do it because it's hard, because everyone gets used to the whole idea of, oh, well, I just go to Windows Update. Well, you can't do that. You're an isolated system. You don't give it a portal to the internet. That's the whole bloody point of not having a portal to the internet. So what you do is you make sure you download all of the updates from the Microsoft website uh, to a drive, well, you know, flash drive, I suppose, these days that has been heavily virus scanned. And you go and you apply those updates essentially offline, as it were. And that's how you would do it. But, of course, that takes more time. It's more effort. And everyone likes to have a big cry about it. It's like, oh, I don't really have time to update this guy. Well, you know what? You probably should. Because had someone actually at Microsoft actually – oh, hang on. The other thing I didn't mention is after the 12th of October, there was the, the, the attacks went on for a year and a bit later. Because people hadn't updated their damn systems. I mean, what's wrong with people, right? But that's what's wrong with people is that they think they're safe because it's an isolated system. But here's another really good lesson to, to take away from this. Why the hell was Step 7 installed on a computer that was running WinCC? Like the SCADA and the, and the, and the, op, the environment, the programming environment. Why was it on the same damn computer? I mean, I already know the answer. It makes it easier for them as a developer to have it all on the one machine because you tweak a bit of SCADA, you tweak a bit of PLC code, you get to see the result in the one machine. But it's there's no ch- separation of church and state, right? Oh, right, yeah. So it's like like developing locally and pushing to the server. You're doing it all yes. right there. Yeah, yeah exactly. See, what, to do it properly, you would have a separate development machine that had no SCADA on it. And then you would have a separate machine that had the SCADA on it. It was your run, you know, your runtime machine. That's what you would do to ordinarily. You keep them separate. And that diagnostic machine was only ever used for loading code to and on the to and from the PLCs, and it's never connected to a network. And that's what you should do. If you've got an engineering workstation in PCS7, you don't get a choice. You get it all installed. That's a DCS. But generally speaking, if it's not a DCS, it's extra for that programming code. So once you do your development, you pack up your laptop and go home, right? The integrators will pack up and they'll go home. You don't leave. Step seven, Semantic Manager costs $5,000. You know, a license, it's not cheap. So I'm not going to leave step seven on a, on a client's computer when I just go just because it's easier. It's the sort of thing that, you know, clients say, oh, well, we'd like to modify our own code. And I'd look at them with a raised eyebrow. You really want to modify your own code? No. Eh. Best of luck. But, you know, there's not not to say that it's hard necessarily, but I mean, anyone can do it if they apply themselves. It's more the fact that are they going to warrant their own work? Because I tell you what, leaving the keys to the car 
for a you know the equivalent of someone who's at the bottom of the learning curve you know never driven a car before is kind of dangerous and you know i've the number of times i had call outs to the site where we, where they had insisted that we install uh step seven on their machines so that they could do minor tweaks as necessary you go in there you look at the time and date stamps and they say oh we never touched it and you're like point at the time and date stamp you point at when you last stepped and your last left and your last backup you do a code comparison you're like someone changed this line of code here from this to this and that to that i haven't been here have has another integrator been here uh no and you never did it um no and i'm like yeah sure anyway so i think it's sloppy to have s step seven on the same damn machine as WinCC. i think you should have a separate diagnostic laptop and leave it at that so I think that's sloppy because if that hadn't happened, Stuxnet never would have worked. Okay. Um, the last way in, of course, apart from, you know, make sure you apply the regular patches and so on, is a lockdown of USB ports. And there's all sorts of software that can let you do that, like BitLocker-style software, right, where you insert a flash drive into the machine and it will format it and encrypt it. And once it's formatted and encrypted, it can then only go to another machine running the software with that same crypto on it and have virus scan the living crap out of it before you then put it back into the machine. And there's usually a reverse process as well. So when you insert on the protected system, you know, you can go and do that. Yeah, and you have to do that for some patches and updates. But really, what you'll find is that the SCADA system might might uh, save reports in Excel format or something, a, a comma-separated format. Right. And the operators will just get a flash drive from out of their pocket that they use at home, and they've got a photo of the kitties on it or the puppy or whatever. Anyway, they'll put this in from wherever, and it'll have God knows what on it, and they're plugging it into a damn SCADA computer. Why? Oh, they just want the CSV file. It's 459. They've got to do some work on it tonight. Copy, paste, done. Oops, I just got a damn virus on my SCADA machine and the plant is down tomorrow. So, you know, when I was doing this sort of thing uh, as like, as an integrator, you know, we always recommended things like that. So isolate your network. You know, apply the updates regularly. Like do it. Check once a week, once every two weeks, just not once a year, please, God, more than that, more regularly than that. Don't install your your PLC programming environment on the same machine as your SCADA. Keep them separate. Honestly, if any of those things that I listed had have been followed, Stuxnet would have failed. Instead, it didn't. It succeeded. It's crazy, isn't it? That these places that have got so much at stake make such, such simple mistakes. So, you freaking out yet? Well, I guess I would be if it... Well, yeah, right? But maybe I'm not surprised. Well, I mean, human nature is human nature, and that's the problem. And people people just make these assumptions. Oh, you don't have to worry about security because insert you know stupid reason here. But the truth is that there's more than one way to get a virus on a machine. And you, know, you can have the best uh, firewalls in the world. You can have the best email scanners in the world and viruses can still get in. You know, the, I, I love the approach of, of um, many email systems now. Rather than the whole search and detect thing, and maybe viruses are on their own is a, is a separate topic, but you know, rather than let any virus in in a Word macro, it'll just say, whoop, Word document came in, delete. Won't even let you open it. It's like, oh, at work, you know, we've got one of these filters. PDF, no problem. There's no macros in a PDF. 
You want to send me a Word document? Out of luck. Yeah. Even if you zip it, it'll unzip it, detect it's a Word document, and bump, gone. So, you know, that's the heavy-handed approach, but you know what? It stops that attack vector, right? Right. Anyway, I don't have too much more to say about Stuxnet, so hopefully that's um, shed some light on it. There's some good links in the show notes if you want to read up on it. And um, I think a lot of places are taking SCADA security a lot more seriously as a direct result of Stuxnet. So maybe on the whole, it was a good thing for the world in general, and maybe it's going to indirectly make the world a more secure place in terms of control systems. Let's hope so. But that's it. If you want to talk more about this, you can find John on Twitter at John Chigi. It's the same on app.net. You should check out John's site, techdistortion.com. If you'd like to send an email, you can send it to john at techdistortion.com. I'm Ben Alexander, and you can reach me on Twitter at fiatluxfm. You can follow at Pragmatic Show on Twitter or at Pragmatic on app.net to see show announcements and other related materials. I want to say another thank you to our sponsor, Typeform, for sponsoring this episode. Make sure you guys check them out. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks, John. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>